AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with current and former U.S. intelligence officers. And today I have a real treat. Back in September of last year, my wife and I were privileged to attend the CIA 75th anniversary Alumni Day. And we were given a sneak preview of the newly renovated CIA Museum. And today, we're going to be able to take you on a bit of a guided tour. Rob Byers uh, got his uh, bachelor's degree in history from the University of Michigan. Uh, He did his museum training from the U.S. Army Center for Military History. Over the past 20 years, he's produced a number of documentaries, both through U.S. government institutions and private ones. He joined CIA in 2004, and uh, he is currently serving as the CIA Museum uh, Director and Curator. Rob, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Rob, I think uh, our audience would like to know a little bit about what was the impetus behind the museum renovation? Uh, So this isn't, uh, you know, a quick thing. We've been looking at doing this museum for over 10 years. In fact, my predecessor, Tony Hiley, uh, she started off with uh, just really asking everyone at the agency what they wanted in a new museum nearly a decade ago. And from that, she took that information, went to stakeholders all throughout the agency and asked them what they thought as well. And then with the results, she went around to a lot of different institutions, um, a number of Smithsonian institutions, the Marine Corps Museum, um, a few others, trying to get best practices for what a, a new CIA museum would look like. The old museum had been centered around the directorates of CIA. Um, The DO had a big exhibit on uh, first into Afghanistan. That was our last new exhibit, and that opened up in 2007. And then we had exhibits on uh, the DSMT, DA at the time, the Directorate of Intelligence. And so what we really wanted to do um, was figure out a way to create a more organic museum. So in 2015, we met with a design company to come up with a high concept idea of what the new museum would look like. And we decided that it made sense to put it all around the five core mission threads of CIA rather than the directorates. As you know, the CIA has moved towards more of a fusion model. Uh, We've got the mission centers now. And so the idea of stovepiping the museum uh, didn't quite make sense so much anymore. And so the five core mission threads are clandestine collection, uh, covert uh, action, um, counterintelligence, partnerships, and um, analysis. So those are what infuse the entire museum. Basically, these threads go throughout every single mission. And in fact, if you look at all these different parts of the museum, you'll see the different symbols for the different mission threads when, you know, for instance, you get to 
something about, let's say, overhead reconnaissance. You know, that's going to be uh, a lot about clandestine collection, um, not so much about counterintelligence. So there'll be symbols letting you know what that is. Uh, and so that was what we did as sort of the groundwork for the new museum. And we also decided that we wanted to make this really visually appealing. Before, the museum had incredible artifacts, but the look and the feel of the museum was cases uh, throughout a hallway. There was a lot of great graphics and uh, treatments, especially in the Afghan section, updating it uh, to make it look more like a museum. But with this new iteration, we truly transformed the space, uh, making it not look like a hallway anymore, but really like any museum that you'd walk into in downtown D.C. And one of the ways we transformed the ceiling of the new museum was, you know, the hallway that you walk into is a chronological history of CIA. But in the ceiling, we created a chronological history of cryptology. So it starts off with Morse code. And when you make your way all the way down to the end of the hallway, when you're in the digital age, um, it's in binary code. So that, that was uh, one of my favorite parts of the new museum is it's sort of a little um, nuance to the museum that you don't see probably anywhere else. And that really speaks to the history of CIA and, commu and secret communications. So that was a really great new addition to the new museum. So the museum has been open for a number of months now. How are these new spaces being received? We opened up the new museum for the 75th anniversary of CIA, uh, September 16th, just two days before the, the actual 75th anniversary of CIA on September 18th. And um, ever since we've been... <laughs> inundated with requests for uh, people to tour the museum. We've had a lot of high-ranking officials from inside the U.S. government and around the world, and it's really been a pleasure showing them the new museum. Uh, we've gotten a lot of great feedback, and I think the most important feedback we're getting is from our officers, who are, you know, one of the main reasons for this museum is to show our officers their history and how important it is, both successes and failures. Really, the whole purpose of the museum is to make sure we are able to be operationally uh, better than we were before. And so for our officers to see their history and, you know, one unique thing about our museum is as I said before, it's in a hallway. So as people are going to their jobs, as they're going to work, they're passing through their history. So we hope that it gives them some ideas as they're going to their next meeting, um, you know, something they might be working on. And, you know, when we hear our officers saying how much they appreciate the museum, that that really makes me feel good. Well, as a fellow history major, that really resonates with me. Let's take our audience um, on a bit of a tour. Let's tell them and show them about a few of your artifacts. Great. What about the gold coins? So the the gold coins are, are one of my favorites. Uh, the 
history of the CIA doesn't really start with the CIA in 1947, uh, really starts with the Office of Strategic Services and actually its predecessor, the Coordinator of Information, both uh, directed by Major General William Donovan. Um, there's a lot of different things that the OSS does during World War II. Uh, you know, really, they are trying to create a new modern intelligence apparatus. They are literally throwing everything against the wall to see what'll stick. In fact, uh, General Donovan's uh, unofficial motto for the OSS was, let's give it a try. And so uh, they were really trying very hard to figure out many different things, um, many different challenges. And during that time, they basically create what will become the modern intelligence apparatus, the CIA. And one of the things they did a lot is special operations. Um, General Donovan, when he was over in uh, Great Britain, he would see how MI6 and Special Operations Executive, the commando branch for, uh, the, for Great Britain, how much they were fighting each other. And Donovan didn't want to see that with the OSS. So he made sure both of those capabilities were brought into the OSS, which at the CIA, we're very glad that we were able to have that capability. In fact, a few years ago, we had uh, the head of MI6 come in and he lamented that he didn't have, you know, that paramilitary capability. So we, we've got a lot to thank for Donovan and his foresight into that sort of uh, different types of operations, so special operations. Uh, during World War II, one of the things is that a lot of these people, these Jedbirds uh, in Europe, would go behind occupied lines and, um, you know, parachute into occupied territory and meet up with a resistance of the different countries they were in. So when they got together, for instance, with the French resistance, um, one of the things these groups needed was money. They needed money in order to fund their operations. And one type of money that spans all types of cultures and, and geographic lines is gold. So the OSS had in their possession $20 gold coins from the 1800s. And they would use that, uh, bring it to the French resistance, and then they could use it to buy supplies, guns, whatever they needed. And so it's Wonderful that after the CIA was created, um, that we were able to get these gold coins as well. And so uh, just a few years ago, they came into the museum's collection and we have them prominently on display as you walk into the new museum. Rob, I'm old enough that I can remember the thunk thunk of the pneumatic tubes. Um, but I would imagine that a lot of the younger officers and many of the people out there in our audiences don't know what they are. So the pneumatic tubes are a crowd favorite for sure. Uh, it seems like anyone who worked with them, uh, you know, they, they have a lot of fond memories of the pneumatic tube systems. And the reason why CIA had a pneumatic tube system uh, in place is because CIA was originally at uh, in Washington, D.C., at Navy Hill, um, where the OSS headquarters had been during World War II as well. Uh, Alan Dulles, the CIA director, longest serving CIA director, wanted a, a much more expansive campus for CIA. 
Um, had a lot of professors here at CIA and idea of sort of a rolling hills campus that you can imagine a bunch of professors walking around and also removed a bit away from, you know, our the policymakers who we were working for uh, also lent itself to moving out to Fairfax County. One of the draws that uh, Fairfax County had uh, for CIA was that they promised to extend the George Washington Parkway all the way to the Beltway, because at the time it did not connect at all. So that was something they promised and something they delivered when CIA moved in in 1961. Now, this was a gigantic structure. And so all of a sudden, CIA was faced with the task of how do you get these classified documents all across this building? So that's why they put in a gigantic pneumatic tube system with different types of canisters. For instance, if the material was highly classified, uh, top secret, it would go into a red tube. If it was confidential, it would go into a yellow tube. Unclassified material would go into a green tube. And then they had markings on the bottom of the tubes that told you where it should go in the building. Although um, apparently people weren't above sending um, maybe a sandwich or some snacks along to a friend through the pneumatic tube system as well. And in fact, next to the pneumatic tube system, uh, we have on display a few cans of beer maybe those were sent alongside the pneumatic tubes as well. Uh, those we actually found inside the building during uh, renovation times when we would find from the early 60s, I guess during uh, a break, people would have a beer and then they would actually wall it in after they were done. So we've got those on display as well. Now, when email came along, the pneumatic tube system was not long for the world, but the love for the pneumatic tube system was ever present throughout CIA. And so there was actually a Save the Tubes campaign. And we actually have on display one of the pins created by CIA officers in the vain hopes of keeping the pneumatic tube system around. As you can imagine, email won the day. Rob, tell our audience about a message written on toilet paper. So it turns out and this is something we do at, at CIA Museum. Uh, you know, as you walk into headquarters, the first thing you see on your left is you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. For the longest time, this artifact uh, written by Popov, one of our first assets in the Soviet Union, was thought to have been written in prison by Popov on toilet paper. That was um, turns out to have been a myth. And so that's something we do at CIA Museum is we're always trying to get to the truth. Uh, you know, in the intelligence business, there's always the wilderness of mirrors, but uh, in the uh, museum world, it exists as well. So with different stories swirling around, we're always trying to make sure we know the real story. And in the case of this, this was written by Popov um, on very thin paper, and then it was given to his case officer in a brush pass. And in this document, it tells his case officer that he's been compromised, that the KGB has picked him up, and that all the information he's going to be given to the CIA is compromised information. And it just is a real testament to how much Popov believed in the mission that even though he was in mortal danger, he was 
warning the CIA not to use the information they were going to be getting from him. So it points out a number of things. One, how we're always looking for the truth in our artifacts and making sure we have the truth and full story. And two, it really speaks to the heroism of these uh, Soviet officers, especially in the early days of the Cold War, who really kept that Cold War cold, um, making sure that it didn't start into World War III. And we, we have a lot to honor in those assets, for sure. Rob, as we know, the uh, Berlin Tunnel was one of the most successful early technical operations for CIA. But maybe some of our younger uh, members in the audience won't know that much about the operation. So the, the Berlin Tunnel uh, was an operation conceived in the early 50s. It was a joint operation, a uh, uh, clandestine signals operation between uh, CIA and MI6. Now, at the time, there wasn't a, a Berlin Wall yet erected. And so um, we had identified a communications hub just about 100 yards into East Germany, into the East Berlin side uh, from West Berlin. And so someone conceived of a really audacious plan, which was, what if we dug all the way under from the West Berlin side to the East Berlin side and then tapped that communications hub? And so that's exactly what we did, um, really removing tons and tons of dirt, uh, tunneling. Uh, I think the total was about 1,700 feet underground to get to that communications hub. And then, um, you know, putting together the uh, tap in and then for over a year, just getting an incredible amount of, of raw intercepts from uh, the, 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 you know, from behind the Iron Curtain. And it was really uh, an incredible early coup for uh, SIGINT uh, during that time period. And eventually the East Germans found <laughs> that uh, tunnel. It turned out that George Blake and MI6 Mole had tipped off the Soviets really from the inception of the, of the Berlin Tunnel idea. But he didn't know where the Berlin Tunnel was. So they're frantically looking for the tunnel, and eventually they do find it. But during that year, we get an incredible uh, amount of information um, that's really useful to us during that time period. My favorite part, uh, a story about the Berlin Tunnel, and it just shows you, you know, when you're on one of these types of operations, how you have to really think on your feet very quickly. So during the first snow in uh, Berlin, the snow that hit the ground above the tunnel because of the heat generated by all the electronic equipment inside that tunnel, it would actually melt the snow on the ground. And so they realized it would be a telltale sign to uh, the East Germans uh, that something was amiss. And so in a matter of days, CIA and MI6 had to come up with a solution to cool down the tunnel enough so that the snow wouldn't melt and that there wouldn't be a, a giveaway sign. And that's what they did so that they, the, the operation could keep going. So, uh, again, a really incredible operation. Now, when the tunnel was found, the Soviets thought it would be such a great 
coup, a publicity coup about, oh, look at what those, uh, you know, dastardly CIA operatives are doing. And instead, the world looked at it and went, oh, my gosh, that's that's pretty neat. And so it became a publicity coup. But for us. So, you know, you never know how these operations uh, are going to end. But in this case, it actually turned out to be pretty good for our, our worldwide image. Rob, please tell us what the Svetlana letter was. So the Svetlana letter is just an example of, uh, again, thinking quickly on your feet. Now imagine this, um, in Delhi in the 1960s, late 1960s, uh, a woman walks into the embassy and says that she is the daughter of Stalin. Now you can imagine that people would have been very confused. Is this a dangle? Is she trying to, uh, you know, embarrass the United States? And, um, you know, it was one of those things where we thought it was worth the risk and quickly got on her on a plane, got her to uh, Italy and then to the United States, where it was confirmed that she was indeed the daughter of Joseph Stalin, that she wanted asylum with the United States. And, um, you know, just a, a Again, a great example of um, all these, you, you never know who's going to walk in and how you are going to have to deal with a, a very uh, interesting situation when the, the books don't prepare you for. And in this case, uh, those officers made the right choice um, and definitely got her to freedom. And um, again, another publicity coup for, for the United States. Rob, please tell us who Barbara Robbins was and how she has been honored. One of the new things in the museum are innovator cases. So it's a way that we can really talk about individuals in CIA history, about the different ways they've helped the mission or, you know, served as um, people to emulate or um, to honor. And in the case of Barbara Robbins, we have an individual who at a very young age decided that she wanted to do her part to fight communism and volunteered to join the CIA. Two years later, she again volunteered to go to Saigon and be a part of that mission. Um, unfortunately, a uh, car bomb exploded just outside the embassy, killing her and a few other people. Uh, she was 21 at the time, one of the young, she was the youngest CIA officer to die in the line of duty um, and the first female officer to die in the line of duty as well. Uh, you know, it, it points to a few different things about CIA. I mean, there's the directorate of supports motto it's that says we go as one and it doesn't matter what role you're in. Uh, but that you play an important part in helping CIA do its mission. And that's exactly what Barbara Robbins did. And so today we definitely teach about, you know, the lessons of her, her life and um, the sacrifice that she made. And it, it's been an honor to have two new artifacts join the museum this past year when her brother Warren donated to the museum 
a letter from Lyndon, uh, President Linda Johnson uh, as a, a condolence letter to her family after she died, as well as um, uh, a medal from the CIA given to her family posthumously. So these are two artifacts, two new artifacts in our new museum, and that highlight the, the life and the sacrifice of Barbara Robbins. Yeah. A great way to uh, honor uh, a fallen officer. I was also pleased to see when I visited back last September that there is a display for Elizabeth Sudmeyer, a CIA uh, trailblazer. Elizabeth was my first boss. And I was actually privileged to attend her uh, trailblazer ceremony and um, meet a number of her family members. Tell us about the Zawahiri uh, model. The Zawahiri model is a very interesting story. About two weeks before the new museum opened, I was doing a video with Director Burns. And after the video, he said, Rob, I know your new museum is almost uh, finished, but I wonder if you have room for just one more artifact. And when he told me what the artifact was, I was, well, absolutely, sir. <laughs> we will definitely be very happy to have that in the new museum. What it is, it's a model of the Zawahiri compound in Kabul. Uh, the Taliban, after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, invited Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, uh, UBL's successor, to go live in this compound in Afghanistan. Once the U.S. government found where he was. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency created a model of this compound, and it was used to brief President Biden. In fact, there's a great picture of uh, CIA Director Burns talking to President Biden, and in front of them, there's a case, and uh, the caption from, I think, the Washington Post says, what's in the box? Well, it turns out that what is in the box is the Zawahiri compound. And basically, uh, intelligence uh, sources were briefing, uh, explaining to the president where Zawahiri was and then establishing a pattern of life because President Biden had one request and that there would be absolutely no collateral damage if there was a strike against the Zawahiri compound. So we needed to know exactly where Zawahiri would be, when he would be there, uh, for instance, on the rooftop away from other people. And so after careful observation, uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence sources are able to tell President Biden that he'll be here at this time, and we're confident in uh, a strike against the Zawahiri compound. And this past summer, that's exactly what happens. And so um, that is why this Zawahiri compound is so important, because not only does it tell that story, but it, it it's in the case that talks about the whole history of our Afghan count of our time in Afghanistan. So it starts off with a gun that belongs to Mike Spann, the first officer to die in Afghanistan. It shows um, Talibar, a popular makeshift bar that anyone in station would drop by and sign their name at. 
And then there are the seven stars of coast, uh, the coast memorial that for our seven fallen officers who thought they had a lead on Zawakri, a Jordanian doctor said that he could get us to him. It turned out that he was actually a double agent. He came into the um, coast compound wearing an IED and exploded it, killing seven of our officers. So it really closes that whole loop that we have the Zawakri compound uh, sort of closing, uh, being sort of the final chapter in that uh, the Afghanistan campaign. Rob, tell us about Operation Cold Feet and what kind of new technology was used for that? Operation Cold Feet, it's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, it, you know, um, basically the, the story is in the early 60s, there's a Soviet scientific station on, on an Arctic ice flow. And the ice flow becomes, becomes unstable, so they have to evacuate very quickly, and they leave everything behind. The CIA partners up with a, a U.S. Navy officer named Lashak, who really thinks this would be a good treasure trove of information. Well, the problem is that we can't get there by boat. We can't get there by plane or by helicopter. So how are we going to go get that uh, tantalizing information? So CIA has a little trick up its sleeve. It's called the Fulton Skyhook Recovery Method. And so we parachute Lashak and another um, military officer down to the ice flow where they collect the information, put it in a bag, tie it to a very elastic rope. And on the end of that rope is a gigantic helium balloon that floats up into the sky. And then a modified B-17 with little pincers comes along and catches the rope, cuts it, and then winches in the material. And then the men are in uh, these green jumpsuits and they attach to their back a rope and the helium balloon as well. And they're winched up into the plane as well. If you ever wanna see what this would look like in real life, uh, there's a great example of it in a James Bond movie, Thunderball. Uh, Google the ending of Thunderball and you will actually see a very realistic depiction of the Fulton Skyhook recovery method. The only thing that's probably not realistic is that when you're being pulled up at 150 miles an hour, I don't think you could just hold on to your girlfriend very casually as James Bond does. But uh, in real life, the same plane that you see at the end of Thunderball is the same plane that was used in the operation for Operation Cold Feet. Uh, I think they must have been very good friends uh, with someone on the seventh floor at CIA, the producers of the James Bond movie. Now, what was very interesting about the helmet that uh, we have, and it's a, a really generous loan from the Lashak family, is the helmet and boots um, are uh, were worn by Lashak on this mission. And on the helmet, you can see it says Petty's Frigidity, which in Latin means cold feet. So right in front of you, you have the operation's name, as well as a bunch of uh, signed names from people who worked on that operation as well. And the blue, the boot, the boots look huge, right? They look like clown boots. But the truth is, what you would do is you would pressurize them, and it would keep your feet really nice and warm, and uh, allow you to run around on a nice flow without uh, worrying about the outside temperatures. 
So Operation Cold Feet is a great example of using very interesting technology to carry out uh, a very dangerous operation and collect uh, an incredible treasure trove of, of uh, intelligence. Rob, if members of our audience would like to learn more about other artifacts in the museum, where can they go to find that information? Well, Jim, if people have enjoyed this interview, uh, I would highly suggest they go to CIA.gov to see more pictures of the museum. You can also go onto YouTube and Facebook to look at our in the debrief videos, uh, I think they're also on Instagram too, uh, that highlight different artifacts in the museum. So there's a few different options on the web. So if you're not able to get into the museum, you can at least see artifacts and overviews of the museum as well. Well, I would like to thank uh, Rob Byers and the CIA Museum for a really fascinating tour. And we have only really scratched the surface. There's just a lot more there um, for you to go and see if you have the opportunity. Thanks for having me, Jim. AFIO is a small, nonprofit, apolitical, educational organization whose main mission is to help prepare the next generation of intelligence officers to confront the challenges our nation faces in the years ahead. To learn more or support our outreach programs, visit www.afio.com.